thank you so much for being here um, in worship with us today. And if you're watching us online, we um, thank you for joining us as well as those of you who are in our overflow room. So we are continuing a series today. We started last week called Plastic Pork Chops. And if you were here last week, you know, I talked about an experience that I had a little over a decade ago when our then two-year-old daughter uh, received for Christmas a little toy kitchen. And along with that, a lot of plastic food and how that Christmas afternoon she spent time making me various plates of plastic food items, including a, a plastic pork chop that she would bring to me. And, and I talked about how I don't eat plastic food generally. I, I don't like it. I don't like the way it tastes. It provides no nutrition for me. However, every plate she bought, uh, brought to me, I would act like it was the best thing in the world. I would pretend to eat it. And she would keep bringing this food to me, and I said, even though I did not need or desire this plastic food, I acted like it was a big deal because I wanted her to keep coming back to me. And even though I didn't need the food, I did want the heart of my daughter. And I said, that experience uh, reminds me of this truth that we find in Scripture. And the truth is this, God owns everything. The Bible says that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns all the gold in a thousand Fort Knoxes. He owns every bit of currency that has ever been printed. God does not need anything that we give to him, and yet he asks us to give, not for his benefit, but for our benefit. When we give, it does something in us to change us. And so last week I talked about how the Bible gives three main reasons for us giving. Two of those have to do with our relationship with God, and one of those has to do with our relationship with money. And so last week we talked about the first reason for giving, which is giving grows my trust in God. And we looked at a passage from the Old Testament book of Malachi, uh, where God, speaking through the prophet Malachi, said to the people of Israel, look, you are not tithing. You're not giving to me 10% of what I've given, given to you. You are essentially robbing me of, of what I have given to you. And God goes on to say, look, you're not giving because you think if you give, if you tithe, then you won't have enough left over at the end of the month. And so then God says, I want you to test me or to trust me in this. Give, and, as then, and then as I provide all that you need and then some, then you will learn how to trust me. And we said last week that because money is such a big deal, such a powerful tool, that when we give and we learn to trust God, that that bleeds over into other areas of our lives as well. That if we can trust God with our money, we can trust Him in other areas as well. This week, we're going to look at giving reason number two, which is giving grows my heart for God. Those are different. Uh, you can trust someone but not necessarily have a heart for that person. God forbid if something happened in our home and we had a fire and we called 911 and the fire truck came out, if the fireman got off that truck and said, hey, here's what we need to do, I would trust him in that. I would not try to get in his way. I would not say, I think I know better. Even though I don't know the guy, even though I don't know his heart, even though we have no connection, I'm going to trust that he's going to take care of the fire much better than I can take care of the fire. Uh, if some of you have experienced this before, if you go to have surgery, you may not have a heart for the surgeon, but you trust him. You know, I've trusted surgeons before that I really didn't know. I trust them to knock me out and cut on me. And that's a lot of trust that I'm placing in a surgeon, even if we don't have a relationship. 
You can trust someone without having a relationship with them. And some people view their relationship with God that way. They view their relationship with God as a transactional relationship. So they trust God and they say, God, if I do my part, then you do your part and we're good, right? But God wants so much more than that. Sure, trust is a part of it, but God wants our hearts as well. And when we give, it changes our hearts and it grows our relationship with God. The clearest teaching uh, in the Bible on this comes from the lips of Jesus. Matthew 6, 21, Jesus said this, Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. Now we read these words of Jesus and we think, well, Jesus, you got it backwards. We think, well, where your desires are, where your emotions are, where your affection is, that's where your money goes. I mean, we think of this, if you're a parent, in terms of our kid. We love our kids, and so our money and lots of it goes to our kids. You know, if you, if you love a particular sports team, you'll spend a lot of money buying tickets to go see games. Uh, some of you have made very hefty donations to colleges just to have the right to buy the tickets to go and see the games. You love this school, you love this team, and so... Your treasure goes towards that school or towards that team. And so we read this and we think, well, Jesus, you got it backwards. It should read where the desires of your hearts are, there your treasure will go. Jesus didn't say it that way. He said, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. In other words, where you give your emotions and your interest and your heart actually follow. That giving is that powerful that it actually changes our emotions. I, I saw this years ago when I was living in Charlotte. I had a friend in the church where I served there who had gone to Clemson about the time that Clemson won the football national championship in 1981. Now, this guy was a diehard Clemson fan. In his house, he had all kinds of Clemson stuff on his shelves and pictures hanging on the walls. He even had in his master bathroom an orange toilet and an orange bathtub, which I understood he special ordered and had installed on a weekend. His wife was out of town because she hated that orange toilet and that orange bathtub. I mean, every time I saw this guy, he had on a Clemson hat, Clemson shirt, had on orange shoelaces. I mean, this guy just loved Clemson and lived and breathed Clemson until his daughter graduated from high school and decided to go to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. All of a sudden, his daughter and his money were not going to the Orange School in upstate South Carolina, but rather were going to the Carolina Blue School located in Chapel Hill. And at the same time that his daughter was a freshman in college, his son was playing high school football. And so there in Charlotte at this local high school, he was playing. I went to see him play in a game one day and walked into the stadium. I went to find his parents. I wanted to sit with them as I watched their son play football, wind him away, my way through the bleachers. And I finally, I spot my friend and my diehard Clemson fan is seated there wearing a North Carolina hat. I said, buddy, what are you doing? I can't believe this. I've never seen you not in a Clemson hat. 
Not only are you not wearing a Clemson hat, you're wearing a Carolina hat. I can't believe it. And he took the hat off and he looked at it and he said, yeah, I'm sending so much money to this school and my daughter goes there. I figure maybe I can wear some of their gear. And he said, you know what else has happened? He said, I don't hate them like I used to. You know, he said, if, if Clemson's not playing them, I, I'll pull for them. You know? And he said, in fact, when they beat us, which they normally do in basketball, when they beat us, I don't hate them quite as much. Something has changed now that my daughter and my money are going to this school. Some of you in here have experienced something like this. Uh, there are some of you in here, and you have spent your entire life bleeding red and black and thinking that it's perfectly normal to bark at your television during a football game <laughs> like a dog. I mean, you, you, you have spent your entire life hating the color orange, and then your son or daughter graduates from high school, and they decide to go to Auburn. Uh -huh. And all of a sudden, your child and your money are making this journey two hours to the west, just over the Alabama line, and your heart has changed. You know, all of a sudden, you've, you've got a little bit of a soft spot for the war eagle slash tiger slash plainsman, whatever their mascot <laughs> is. You, you go visit your child, and you can walk around Tumor's Corner without breaking out in hives now. Something has happened in you, and if they send you an Auburn t-shirt, you're not going to wear it in public, but you won't burn it like you would beforehand. Why? Because your heart, your child, your money has gone all the way to Auburn and now things have changed. That's what Jesus was teaching in this passage. That when we give, it does something in our hearts. It changes us. It changes our relationship with God. And where our money goes, our hearts will go also. This morning, I want us to look at a passage in Mark chapter 9 that teaches us about developing hearts of generosity. So it's not just hearts that give because we're supposed to or we are obligated to or hearts that give like we would pay a tax or some other kind of duty. We give because it's our joy and our privilege. And in Mark chapter 12, we read a story about a woman who had developed a generous heart, a heart that gave out of a sense of joy, not out of an obligation. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 12. Uh, this particular event takes place in the last week of Jesus' life. Um, and so that last week, uh, Jesus and his disciples spent time in and around the temple area. Uh, this event likely happened on the Tuesday before Jesus was arrested on that Thursday and crucified on that Friday. Um, in Mark chapter 12, Jesus and his disciples are in the temple area, more specifically in the court of women. Uh, just to give you an idea of the temple complex, uh, there was a large courtyard around the temple complex that was called the court of Gentiles. That's where non-Jews could go. Uh, they could spend time there. They could um, yeah, sell wares there. They could hang out in the court of Gentiles. But there were these low five-foot walls all around the main temple complex with signs on these walls that said, no Gentiles beyond this point. Under the penalty of death, no Gentiles can go beyond this point. 
So beyond those walls, there were stairs that went up nine feet to the main temple complex. And the first place that one would enter was the court of women, not because only women could go there, but because women could not go past that point. And so this main area inside those walls was called the court of women. Located around the edges of the court of women were these treasury boxes. They were large boxes, and on top of these boxes were shofars. Shofars are, were made of a ram's horn. They were normally used as, a, as an instrument uh, to blow, but they were placed on top of these treasury boxes with the large end of the shofar pointing outward and the more narrow end connected to the wooden box. Um, and so individuals would come into the court of women and they would bring their money, coins, and they would place their coins into the mouth of that shofar and those coins would rattle, rattle, rattle down the shofar and then fall into that treasury box. Giving at that time was a very public event. We tend to give privately. We tend to think of, God, of giving and money in general as a very private thing. But in that day, it was a public event. And people would come in and they would bring their coins and they would go to one of those treasury boxes and they would give and their money would make all of this noise. And so people who were standing in the temple area would hear that noise and they would see that person giving and they would think, wow, that was a lot of money. Did you hear how loud it was? Did you hear how long it rattled? Did you hear the, the thud those coins make as they landed into the box? Look at that person. They are so generous. Look how much money they gave. And so Jesus and his disciples were gathered there in the court of women. And they, along with everyone else, are watching as people give. And this was a very crowded time. It was Passover week. The temple was extremely crowded. And so people had saved their money to bring on this particular day during this particular week so that they could give and everyone could see just how wealthy they were. So that's where our story picks up. This is Mark chapter 12, verse 41. Jesus sat down near the collection box in the temple and watched as the crowds dropped in their money. Many rich people put in large amounts. Then a poor widow came and dropped in two small coins. So again, temples crowded. Everyone's around. They're watching people give. Jesus and his disciples, they park near one of these treasury boxes. And and. Rich people are coming and they're giving and everyone's impressed and everyone's wild and their coins are making a lot of noise. And then there's this one lady, this poor widow, and she comes and she takes two coins and she places them in the mouth of the shofar and they travel down that shofar and they fall into the box below and no one hears it. The two coins that she used, they were called lept. lept Tons, and they were the smallest unit of currency used in Israel at that point, both in value and in size. It's, it's tough to know exactly how their value would translate into today's dollars, but to say a couple of pennies is fair. They were probably worth more than that, but a couple of small coins, coins that you walk past on the sidewalk and you see on the ground and you think, eh, it's not worth it. It's not worth the effort to bend over and pick up two small coins. 
I mean, that's what she brought. And when she brought those two coins and they went into the shofar and then down into the treasury box, no one would have noticed. They would not have heard her placing those coins in. They were so small, they would not have made any noise at all. And for those who were in charge of these treasury boxes, they would not have viewed the gift of this woman as a big deal at all. I mean, they did not suddenly make plans to expand the temple because of the gifts of this poor widow. They did not say, well, man, boy, this year we're going to have some great ministry at the temple because look what this woman gave. From an earthly perspective, her gift meant nothing at all. But from a heavenly perspective, it was an amazing gift that she gave. Look at what Jesus said next. Verse 43. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I tell you the truth. This poor widow has given more than all the others who are making contributions. For they gave a tiny part of their surplus. But she, as poor as she is, has given everything she had to live on. So again, get the picture. They're in the court of Gentiles. It is crowded. All these people are there. They're giving their gifts. The disciples are looking at these wealthy people who come in and they make big displays of giving their gifts to the temple. They don't even notice this poor widow. And so Jesus says, hey guys, hey, hey guys, come here, come here. I need you to see that. You see that poor widow right there? Yeah, yeah. You see, do you see what she did? No, Jesus, we didn't see. Did you hear? No, Jesus, we didn't hear. What did she do? Do you see? She took two coins and she placed those two coins into the treasury box. And let me tell you about that gift. You guys don't see it. No one else sees it. But let me tell you about that particular gift. She gave all that she had to live on. What, Jesus? Yeah, you see all these other guys giving, and you're impressed, and you think, wow, that's a lot. Understand this. They gave out of their surplus. It did not change their life at all uh, because of what they gave. But this woman gave all she had to live on. Now, we read that, and we think, wait a second. That doesn't make sense. You know, a couple of pennies. I mean, if I gave you a couple of pennies and said, hey, you can retire now. (laughs) You know, here you go. Live on this the rest of your life. You think, hey, that's not possible. It was not possible for her to live off of this. Here's a better translation. What Jesus meant was this woman had a hand-to-mouth kind of existence. She woke up every day, and she didn't know if she'd be able to eat that day. Someone had to provide for her. Someone had to give something to her. That particular day when she got up, someone gave her a couple of small coins, these, these tiny little coins. And for her that day, those two coins meant that she might could buy a piece of bread, maybe some piece of fruit, maybe a little bit more if someone was willing to, to give her a deal on some food. And yet that particular day she came into the temple and she said, I want to be able to give this not for my own benefit, but I want to give this so that I can participate in the work of God in the temple. In other words, she was willing to sacrifice her next meal, one that could have been at least that day a certainty for her. She was willing to give that up to give to the temple. And Jesus calls his disciples over and he says, hey guys, you think that all these other individuals who are dropping these large amounts of coins into the shofar, into the treasury box, You think those are generous individuals? But let me show you. 
Let me point something out to you. You want to see a generous heart? There it is. Because they gave out of their abundance. They gave out of their surplus. But she gave out of her poverty. All that she had, she gave to God. So here's our question this morning. How do we develop hearts that are that generous? In other words, if, if Jesus is watching us, if he's looking at our lives, if, is he, if he is looking at our hearts, does he say, now look, that's a generous heart. Or does he say, you know, you, you need a little bit of work. You need a little bit of massaging of that heart to really develop a spirit of generosity. So how can we do this? How can we develop a heart for God? This is on your message map if you've got it with you. So how can we grow a heart for God? The first thing is this. Give a percentage, not an amount. I mean, that is at the very heart of this story. Jesus pointed out the generosity of this woman, not because she gave a huge amount of money, but because of the large percentage of her wealth that she gave. And throughout Scripture, this is what we see. God says, look, I have given each of you different amounts uh, of resources, of talents, of money, and here's what I expect of you. Not to give exactly the same amount that others have, have given, but to give out of what I have given you. Uh, to give based on what I have given you. And here's what I've learned. Some rich people are generous and some rich people are not. Some poor people are generous, some poor people are not. Generosity is not based on the size of your bank account, but it's based on how you use what you have been given. And if you're willing to take a percentage of that, like God asked, and to give that back to God, to give that to the ministry of God, then that is a sign of a generous heart. Now, what we see this widow doing does not come naturally to any of us. No one is born generous. If you doubt that, here's what I want you to do. I want you to volunteer to go work in the two-year-old preschool next Sunday. And then I want you to come back and report to me. And I'm going to ask you this question. Are two-year-olds naturally generous? You're going to say no. No, no two-year-old walks into the class and says, hey, I brought all my toys from home to share with the whole class today. Here you guys go. Just enjoy. Here, take these toys. Enjoy using them. You know, if you, you sit with a class of two-year-olds and one kid has a toy and another kid wants that toy, what's going to happen? Be a fight, right? One's not going to say, oh, sure. Here you go. I'm naturally generous. It's something that we learn. It's something that we have to train our hearts in. And the best way to do that is through giving. As we give, it changes our hearts and causes us to become more generous. The second thing is this, to give strategically, not spontaneously. To give strategically, not just spontaneously. The most generous individuals I know are not emotional individuals. The vast majority of their giving is planned out and not just an emotional response to some kind of need. Uh, generous individuals can watch the commercials of the poor dog shivering in the cold and they're not moved to immediately pick up the phone and make a donation or to write a check. It's not that they don't care about the poor animals in the cold. They care 
They just understand that an emotional response to some kind of appeal or to some kind of need is not the way to truly make a difference. They are strategic in their compassion, and they understand that that is how to make a real impact in our world. I I read a story several years ago about uh, the Passion Conference that meets every year in Atlanta. If you're not familiar with the Passion Conference, it is a gathering of college students from all over the United States and really all over the world who gather in Atlanta right around New Year's every year to worship and to hear speakers, and they fill up um, the Mercedes-Benz Stadium there, and they have all of these breakout sessions and all these worship services, and it's just this, this, this powerful three- or four-day event. Uh, they always have a focus every year on some, uh, some charity or some sort of need, and this particular year, it was all about human trafficking. And they were talking about how, as college students, they could make a difference and they could help put an end to human trafficking. And at the end of their presentation, they took up an offering. And so these college students gave to this offering for a particular ministry that was working to help end human trafficking. And a reporter who was with CNN heard about this and heard about the offering that they were taking and went and interviewed several college students. And the article featured a story about one college student who had come to the event, who had attended all those worship services, who heard the appeal, who heard about the horrors of human trafficking. And when they took the offering, he gave $100 toward this ministry to help put an end to human trafficking. And the article talked about what a sacrifice this was for this college student, which I'm sure it was, to give this money to make a a difference against human trafficking. Here's what the article did not talk about. While it featured this college student who gave $100 that particular day, it did not talk about the college student who maybe went to this event and may or may not have made a donation. But this particular college student attends his church faithfully every week And this college student has a job on campus where he makes a couple hundred bucks a week. And somewhere along the way, his parents taught him or some teacher taught him about the principle of tithing. And he committed to doing this faithfully every week. And this particular college student every week would give $20 to his church. And that money would go to help pay for the children's pastor's salary and to buy material for the children, and so children were learning spiritual truths and coming to know the Lord. It would help pay for uh, missionaries to be sent overseas where people could hear about the gospel. It would help fund a local food bank where people who were hungry could come and and get food at a reduced cost or for free. And, And week after week and month after month and year after year, this college student would give $20 a week, $1,000 a year, $4,000 over the course of his college career. And although no reporter would ever write about it, that strategic giving would make more of an impact than just a one-time spontaneous gift. The most generous people I know understand this. And they give not just when they feel like it. They give not just because there's some emotional appeal, but they give in a strategic way. And, And don't misunderstand me. Spontaneous generosity is still good. And there are times that we give to needs, we hear some appeal, we think this is worthwhile, but we make a greater impact when we give strategically. And finally, here's the last thing. Give joyfully, not dutifully. Give joyfully, not 
dutifully. This is what we talked about last week. In the New Testament, the language changes from an obligation of a tithe to a privilege of giving. It's not an obligation like a tax. It becomes a joy and a privilege. And this is the passage we looked at last week. I want want to put it up again because it speaks to this. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. In other words, don't give because it's an obligation. Do not give because you're supposed to. Do not give because, well, you're going to feel guilty if you do not give. In the New Testament, over and over, it says we get to participate in what God is doing through our giving. No longer is it an obligation. It is a joy and it is a privilege because as we give, it benefits us far more than it benefits God. Uh, Years ago, when I was in my very first ministry in North Georgia, there was a guy in the church Uh, who had retired, and he spent a lot of time volunteering in the church. He was a deacon. Uh, He actually worked with us in the student ministry. He he did all sorts of uh, volunteer ministry in town, and we just just got to be good friends over the years. And uh, one Tuesday, he called me, and he said, hey, can you ride with me tomorrow to a chicken farm to pick up eggs? I said, yeah, I'll be happy to do that. What's going on? He said, well, I volunteer with a local food bank here, and they have an arrangement with this chicken farm where they will donate eggs as long as I go pick up the eggs and bring them back to the food bank, and then they give out these eggs on Wednesdays to people who come by and need food. And I said, sure, yeah, I'd love to ride with you. And so he picked me up in his truck, and we started the 10 or 12 or 15 miles out into the country to go to this chicken farm to get eggs. We finally arrived there. Worst smell I think I'd ever smelled in my life, this huge chicken farm. They loaded several dozen eggs into the back of his truck, and then we started back to town to go to the food bank to drop off these eggs. And along the way, I was just peppering this guy with questions. I mean, he had all sorts of wisdom. This guy had walked with the Lord more years than I had been alive. And so I'm just asking him about volunteering, about uh, you know, his role in the church, just all the different ways he was doing ministry. And at some point, we started talking about money and giving. And he made this statement that, It's one of these things that's just stuck to the roof of my brain all of these years. He said, here is what I have discovered in my life. The money that has brought me the most joy is the money that I have given away. In other words, the money that has brought me the most joy is not the money that I have spent on myself to buy some trinket or to buy some experience or to spend on some other thing. He said, the money that has brought me the most joy and happiness in my life is the money that I have given to the Lord. Some of you know this truth well because you give and you understand the joy that is found in giving. And you have over the years developed that heart of generosity and it is exciting and it is a joy for you to be able to give. Some of you, you're not quite there. Here's my encouragement to you. Keep trying. Keep doing it. And watch what God does in your heart over time as you develop a heart of generosity and you find incredible joy in giving.